Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Welcome to week five of our series called Everyday Faith, uh, a study of the biblical book of James. Uh, we're going to end the series next week, so we're kind of coming to an end. I hope for you that it's been really helpful. It has certainly challenged my own faith as we've been studying this book together. Today, our passage comes from James chapter two, uh, beginning with verse one. It says, my brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly, and if a poor person comes in with dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand here or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich, is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you do murder, then you have become a transgressor of the law. So to speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty for judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. For mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of God for the people of God. Now, uh, to help make sense of this passage, I want you to imagine uh, that you had a whole plate of Skittles, right? And and life is good because you've got a whole plate of Skittles. And if you're anything like me, your first instinct is to try to sort and begin to evaluate the Skittles based on what is your favorite and what will bring the most pleasure to your taste buds. So for me, I really like the purple ones and I'm disappointed in this lot of Skittles because it doesn't have very many purple. Uh, But I also like the red. The reds aren't quite as good as the purple, uh, but they're pretty good. So I like the reds and then maybe the greens and the oranges and actually, I think I read an article once. I don't know if this is actually true or if this is just um, a fake memory of mine, but I think I read an article once that said that Skittles are all flavored exactly the same. It's just the color that tricks our brain into thinking they're different flavors. I don't know about that, um, but that's what it said. So, you know, the ones I don't like so much are the yellow ones. So I'm going to see, actually, if Daniel wants some of those. So, Daniel, do you want some of the yellow ones right there? (laughs) 
There we go. <laughs> um, you know, if you're anything like me, your first instinct is to go to the ones that you really like and then maybe trade or barter for the ones that you don't like. When we have lots of Skittles, lots of packages of Skittle, Skittles in our house around Halloween, that's exactly what we do. Uh, me and my two girls begin to trade and barter the ones we don't like for the ones that we like. So while this practice of sorting and evaluating is rather harmless when it comes to candy, the unfortunate truth is that we have a tendency to do the same thing when it comes to people. Uh, isn't it true that we assess, evaluate, and size people up to establish a pecking order, a sort of hierarchy of value? In, in fact, throughout history, what humanity has done is we've tended to do this kind of sorting out um, with things like color, wealth, language, ability, and so on. In fact, we are so good at this sorting out of people that it only takes just seconds before the evaluation is performed almost 100% unconsciously. And then once the pecking order is established, we show favoritism based on the outcome of those assessments. We favor those maybe who look like us, those that we like the best for whatever reason, or isn't it true we favor the ones who could be the most benefit to us? And then at best, we ignore the others, or at worst, we seek, them, we seek to do them harm. At the risk of taking our Skittle metaphor a little too far, when we look at people, we see purple Skittles or red Skittles or green or yellow, and then we give preferential treatment to some while casting others aside as unimportant. Now, all Skittle metaphors aside, here's how this tends to play out in real life. We favor those who can bring benefit to us, and we ignore those who cannot. And what James is seeking to do in this passage is expose this practice. And since he's talking to Christians, he gives an example that is going to hit right at home. His example is if someone joins a meeting full of Christians. And his argument is this, if the person joining the meeting, meeting is, is rich and it would clearly benefit the group or people in the group to get to know that visitor, then they are given special treatment. But if the person coming in is poor or not dressed in the right way, they may not be kicked out, but they're told, why don't you sit here on the floor? They're not given the same treatment. And these kind of instant, when we pass these kinds of instant judgments, James says, we are being animated by an unholy spirit. That these kinds of judgments, doing what we do with candy, only doing it with people, this is actually evidence of evil. 
in our lives. And, and so his warning actually shows us the incredible truth, which is the church is to demonstrate the generous and universal love of God. Now, this is incredibly difficult. It's one thing to say that. It's a whole other thing to sort of reverse the automatic mechanisms of sorting, sorting and evaluating that all of us have perfected. But the call for Christians is to lean into the difficulty of reversing that kind of natural inclination and saying, what would it look like for me in this circumstance, in this situation, to practice the universal and generous and hospitable love of God? This actually leads right into the next passage of Scripture uh, where James is going to say just the following verse, beginning with uh, chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, then what good is that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Wow. Now this, of course, got James into a bunch of trouble. The Apostle Paul uh, would later say that faith um, comes by believing, and there's, there's not, it's not attached to works, that we can't earn our salvation. Um, and sometimes people have tried to place these two ideas in conflict with one another, but simply what James is trying to point out is that faith should not be considered purely an intellectual exercise. Or we could say it this way, faith is not so much or all about a private spirituality. James's point is, if our faith isn't leading us to show the generous love of God to our neighbor, or isn't causing us or motivating us to live generously, then the faith that we claim has actually died. The faith that we proclaim is actually dead. And this kind of strong language, and it is strong language, but his point seems to be that over time, it's in fact possible that we can have a faith that has begun to rot and even come to the point of being dead, but we may not even realize it. Sometimes, this is especially true, I think, in kind of modern evangelicalism, um, where faith is really heavy on words and kind of light on action. I mean, just look at any discipleship course uh, in a church in modern America. Uh, most discipleship programs are, are focused on giving the believer more information to kind of uh, put into their brain. Discipleship programs largely aren't focused on how do we take the truth and beauty of the kingdom of God and our faith in Christ and begin to work that out in the world? It's so true that we're most comfortable gathering in classrooms to learn information than we are getting out into the world to practice faith in action. And so 
while our faith is heavy on words and light on action, the point, this point is actually made clear in the example that James gives. Suppose that you see a brother or sister that has no food or clothing and you say to them, stay warm and eat well, but you do nothing to help. James essentially says those words might sound like a blessing, but they don't do anything to bless. Um, We might say it this way, "Your your warm words won't keep that person warm in the cold. Your food for thought does nothing to fill their stomach. And so instead of having this faith that is heavy on words and light on action, James encourages us that we are to have a faith that is translated into action. And so it turns out that James's uh, comment about faith without works is dead, and then Paul's thought that we can't work or earn our salvation are not actually in conflict at all. We come to faith in Christ, and then we are to put that into action. And so This, this kind of action-oriented faith, the the kind of faith-filled life that we see in the person of Jesus is going to lead us into true living and is going to help us to bring good into the world. Now, as we've learned throughout the book of James, these thoughts that he develops in chapters 2 through 5, he actually introduces in James chapter 1, and we find this to be true in this situation as well. Because James says in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, don't just listen to God's word, but do what it says. Don't just listen to God's word, but do what it says. Now, you may also remember from the first week of our series that we learned that James is the brother of Jesus. He quite literally grew up with Jesus. And so when he says in chapter one, don't just listen to God's word, but do what it says, and then develops that idea in chapter two, as we've been talking about, all of this is actually an echo of Jesus, who says in Matthew chapter seven, Verses 24 and following, he says, Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. That though the rain come and the torrents and floodwaters rise, the wind beats against the house, it won't collapse because it is built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. Then when the rains and the floods come and the wind beats against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. And so my message this morning is a simple one. It's a functional one. It's one that we can get into our everyday faith. And that is that we are to have an everyday faith. We're to have a faith that finds its way into the way in which we live. Which is to say that our faith in Jesus, if it's functioning properly in our lives, should lead us to faith-filled action in the world. Author and theologian Kenneth Greider said it this way, our theology must fit into overalls. I like that word picture. The point, of course, being that our beliefs 
must be put uh, to work by action in the world. And so my hope and my prayer is that our faith will translate into action, that we'll be doers of the word with a faith that is alive and brings hope, healing, and goodness into the world. And not just with an intellectual message, as important as that is, but that our faith will bring hope and healing and goodness in the world through the tangible actions of believers and the church. Would you join me in praying that God would help us in this endeavor? Heavenly Father, the desire of our hearts today is to have a, a life of faith that translates into action. To not relegate our faith just to the intellectual realm or to the realm of private spirituality, but to put our faith to work in the world. We confess to you, Lord, that sometimes it's difficult to know exactly what action steps we should take. Sometimes it's difficult to know precisely what we are to do in any given circumstance. We confess, Lord, that sometimes it's easier and more comfortable to just have a faith that is about what we think or what we believe. And so, God, would you, through your Holy Spirit, encourage us and guide us and direct us so that we might not just know and have wisdom, but that we also might have the courage to begin more and more to practice our faith in the world. All with the hope and the goal of bringing Christ-centered hope, healing, and good to this world. Recognizing, Lord, that you have invited us as partners in the proclamation of the kingdom of God. So help us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.